You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Does the cosmos have a reason? For almost 60 years I've been asking that question. I seek a definitive answer. I seek, but do not find. Well, I'm hardly surprised and hardly alone. We all seek a definitive answer, reason or no reason, one way or the other. Maybe definitive answer is my problem. Maybe I come at the question too directly. Maybe I need to lower my expectations, dial down my objective. Not ask, does the cosmos have a reason? which, if yes, might require knowing the real reason. But is it possible for the cosmos to have a reason? Can the cosmos have a reason? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. How to pursue this lesser question, can the cosmos have a reason? Does deflating the question enable an easier answer? I will not try to discern or dismiss specific reasons for the cosmos. Rather, I will try to discern the more general question of whether any reason for the cosmos is even possible. I begin with a cosmologist who postulates creating universes from nothing, Alex Valenkin. Alex, if you take a step back, Uh, and look at the whole thing that you've done. What kind of feeling do you get about meaning or purpose or or lack thereof? This picture of the universe that has emerged from modern cosmology certainly removes us from the center of the universe. Not only the Earth is uh, not the center of the solar system, our solar system is a little thing in the periphery of our galaxy, and there are billions of galaxies, and now we are told that there are billions of other unlimited number of other bubble universes in the cosmos, if the, uh, the theory of eternal inflation is correct, then we can say that even identical Earths exist in this enormous multiverse, simply because the quantum mechanics tells us the number of possibilities is finite, even though huge. Uh, so things are bound to repeat. And when this picture emerged, to tell you the truth, I was depressed by it. (laughs) Because I found depressing this this loss of uniqueness, that I thought that, okay, our civilization, regardless of how good or bad it is, at least it is unique, and we we should treasure it as a a precious work of art is treasured. So now we are robbed of this. Nevertheless, another way to think about it is uh, that... Okay, we have this huge universe in front of us. We don't know if there is any life in there. For what we understand, the origin of life requires a highly unlikely fluctuation, and it could be that we are the only life in the visible part of the universe. So we are responsible for a huge region of real estate, (laughs) and we can either screw it and self-destruct, or maybe we can colonize the galaxy and beyond. So... I think we can find meaning in this way, but this meaning has to be attached to our local environment. I don't think we have any central role to play in the universe as a whole. To think that in, what, 400 years of science and 
barely a hundred years, maybe a little more, of modern cosmology, that we understand so much in this extremely small amount of time on a cosmic scale. It, it is truly amazing, because a um, hundred years ago, we still didn't know that there are other galaxies. Yeah, it's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. The immensity of it all is astounding. I'm feeling nudged that the cosmos can have a reason. But my feelings are bipolar, oscillating between depression due to humanity's insignificance and elation due to humanity's comprehension. Why, I wonder, can insignificant human beings know so very much about so very much and in a fleeting moment of universe time that contains all human history? John Polkinghorn does not wonder. He believes he knows why. A quantum physicist who became an Anglican priest, John has advanced interactions between science and religion. John, as a mathematical physicist, as a theologian, if you sum it all together, uh, how do you see the cosmos? Why is there a cosmos? I think it's inevitable that if you ask a question of meaning and purpose, either if you, and you answer it, either by saying the universe ultimately is, is, is pointless or meaningless, or you say it to bring into being creatures who can know God. I grew up in a Christian home. I've always been part of the worshiping, believing community of the church. Of course, I wasn't always a scientist. I came into science from mathematics because I was interested in the way the mathematics explains the world. And I want to hold those things together. And I want to be two-eyed in that sense, to look with the eye of science and the eye of uh, religious insight onto the world. Some would argue that trying to do that distorts both sides. I think the distortion only comes if the wrong side tries to answer the other side's questions. I mean, I think we have every reason to think that scientifically statable questions will receive scientifically statable answers. And similarly, that theologically statable questions will receive theologically statable answers and for theological reasons. In that sense, there is a degree of, of, of separation between the disciplines. But nevertheless, the answers given to the questions have to fit together in some consonant way. I mean, we're very familiar that you can ask the question how and why about the same event. The kettle's boiling because the gas burns and heats the water. The kettle's boiling, so I want to make a cup of tea. Would you like to have one? I don't have to choose between those two. But equally, if I were to say to you, I'm going to make a cup of tea and I've just put the kettle in the refrigerator, you would doubt the, the genuineness of, of my offer. So it seems to me that there has to be a consonance. And in that consonance, we get that synthesis, that deeper and wider uh, view of reality. And then we will with either perspective, simply on its own. I think the theology has to take seriously what science has to say. If the world is God's creation, the science is telling us at least about some aspects of that creation, then we should, we should accept that. And in fact, there's an argument which says that, that modern science got going precisely partly through seeing the world as a creation, uh, and it was w a world worthy of study because it, it was God's world. The influence that theology has upon science is not answering science's questions, but setting the science within a deeper context of intelligibility, so that the fact that the world is, is, is comprehensible, the fact that uh, the world is finely tuned and fruitful in its character, these things which are, seem to be sort of happy accidents or brute facts from a purely scientific, purely scientific point of view, now become intelligible in, in, the, in the context of the world as God's, God's creation. I want science's insight into the processes of the world. I want the intuitions and insights that come to us through religious experience. I want to integrate those two as far as I'm able to do. Of course, I can't do that completely. There are puzzles and, 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 and gaps in the account, but I'm 
passionately believe in the unity of knowledge, and I believe that is underwritten by the unity of the God who is the creator of the world, in which we are seeking that knowledge. No voice is more elegant than John's in making the case for the reality of religion in a world where science is certain. Because of his absolute belief in God, John sets a sharp dichotomy where either the world can and does have a reason, and that reason is God's reason, or the world is pointless and cannot have a reason. I'd want John to be right, but I'm not convinced the dichotomy holds. The world can have a reason that is not God's reason. Now, as science solves more of the mysteries of the universe, appealing to the supernatural to explain the natural does not carry its old force. So with God in the picture, the distinction between does and can the cosmos have a reason is blurred or lost. In contrast, without God, the distinction between does and can is defined clearly. So, can the universe have meaning or purpose without religion? I asked philosopher of science Michael Shermer, publisher of Skeptic magazine. Michael, I can't think of a more profound question than asking, does everything that exists, all there is, the cosmos, have a reason? Is it about something? I think the question, does the universe have a reason or a purpose or whatever, is too broad a question. I think if we specify what we're talking about, like, do stars have a reason? Yeah, their, their purpose, their reason is to convert hydrogen to helium. They can't help it. They do it because <laughs> the laws of nature insist that they do. Humans have a reason or a purpose. Our, our reason and purpose is to survive and reproduce and take care of our offspring and our family and so on. But on top of that, we can build other things like one of the purposes of life is to have some kind of goal in mind, and maybe that goal is a higher goal that has to do with my wanting to impress my fellow tribe members, impress my, my girl, and so on, even though the basic biology of just reproducing because you know, that's like a star converting hydrogen to helium. We produce our DNA. You know, okay. But we can add on to it personal meaning and purpose. So in, in a way, the answer is, yeah, the universe has a, a purpose or a reason. It's what we make of it, but nothing more than that. But if you look at the universe as a whole, it's just there. There's no reason for it. I mean, you're saying that question itself is a meaningless question? I would say the universe is just there, and there's nothing more we can say. As far as we know, there's nothing outside of it to give it meaning. But even if there was, why would that give it meaning? It's still up to me and you to, to create our own meaning. And if we create our meaning in a universe that doesn't have meaning, it, does that make our meaning artificial? It makes it personal. Uh, I don't even I don't like the word artificial. It, it's personal. Um, it's real. It's real as far as I got to get up tomorrow and do something. Right. That's as real as it gets. And the universe, the fact that that, that that was built into the structure at the Big Bang, the initial conditions plus the laws of physics, created that situation where you're going to get up tomorrow morning and have a purpose to do something. Is that an accident? No, I, I think the laws of nature being set up such that stars burn hydrogen and helium and humans get up and go to work tomorrow... I think it, it's all subsumed under laws of nature. Right, it has to be. It has to be, yeah. right. So is that an accident? I don't know. 
uh, it's the property of our universe. Right. Everybody will agree with that. Yeah. But, but what more can we say about that? Maybe there's a, multiple universes and others don't have that. Maybe. Mm-hmm. But who knows? I don't know. You don't know. Is, is that possible to have an answer, even in principle? I, it's hard to say, Robert. I don't know. Uh, I think in principle, we can maybe refine the answer a little bit better, but not ultimately say what it all means. I don't think that's possible. To Michael, things in the universe have natural proclivities conforming to the laws of nature. But the universe itself is just there, with nothing outside of it to give it purpose, so that even in principle, the cosmos cannot have a reason. Michael's answer to my question, can the cosmos have a reason, is clear. No, it cannot. Not only does the cosmos not have a reason, the cosmos cannot have a reason. I'd be disappointed, and perhaps surprised, because too much about our universe is needed for us to exist. Too much seems too perfect. Naturalists respond with multiple universes, perhaps an infinite number of universes. Only where we do exist can we wonder why we can exist. But multiple universes seem an extreme and untestable solution. Is there another kind of naturalistic mechanism to assess a reason? Stephen Wolfram offers one, and I must hear it. Because if his naturalistic mechanism works, might it suggest a reason for the cosmos, or leave the door open for a reason to enter? A quantum physicist, Stephen is the author of A New Kind of Science. Stephen, we'll always come back to the why question. What are the kinds of, of, of questions, the kinds of data that we can look at to address that question, why? Why the cosmos? So the thing that I, I've been very curious about, kind of uh, whether there might be a simple rule that corresponds, that can reproduce all of the, the richness of physics as we see it and, and so on. And what I've realized is that a traditional intuition about the fact that that rule must be something very complicated to reproduce everything that we see probably isn't correct. And that it's perfectly likely that there could be a very simple rule that can reproduce all of the richness that we see in the, in the physical universe. And I've been interested in sort of the space of all possible such rules and in the apparently quite, uh, uh, quite bizarre-seeming project of just searching through that space of possible rules and trying to find our particular universe in the sort of universe of all possible universes. So this rule, if it's a simple rule, it's something that's sort of beneath space, beneath time, beneath all of the things that we normally think of as being uh, obvious aspects of our physical universe. So you go through sort of uh, looking at is that, you know, here's a possible universe. Does it satisfy sort of the basic criteria or not? And often it's a long way away from satisfying even the most basic criteria. And so as you, as you kind of look through sampling the possible rules for the universe, it will tend to be the case that most of the time they are very obviously wrong. But I guess one of the things that, that I sometimes wonder about is, you know, one day I suspect we will actually find the rule for our universe. I don't know how simple it will be, but let's say we have this rule, then we can start asking, why is it this rule and not some other rule? And I try to think about how would we think about that question? And I don't know, but I kind of look to sort of history of things about the ways that 
questions like that might get addressed. So, for example, you know, when, when Newton was first studying celestial mechanics, the motion of planets and so on, he was saying, well, once, uh, once you start the planets and their motions, then, you know, the, the law of gravitation and uh, laws of mechanics will govern how the planets move. But, he said, we don't know how they started. You know, that, for that, we mm. must, you know, look to God or, or whatever else mm -hmm. to, to originally set the planets in, in their motions. If we ask the question about planets, we now know that, you know, it used to be the case, you know, in, in philosophy and so on, people would talk about, you know, whether things were necessarily true or not. And people would say that the fact that there are nine planets, or now it's maybe eight or, or <laughs> 11 or whatever it is, um, the, uh, you know, was an example of something which was not necessarily true. Yeah, it, was just, it was just something that happened to be the case. But in fact, now we know that if you have a star of about the size of the sun and you have, you know, some accretion disk forming and so on, that actually you probably have, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, about that number of planets. Mm -hmm. It is actually something which we can derive from, from further principles. But in Newton's time, it would have been quite inconceivable to see how that would possibly work. And so this is kind of a, uh, for me now, as I think about kind of how would we answer this question of why is it our particular universe, um, I, don't, I don't yet see a way to do that. I think there are two questions here. One, I think that you're asking, is if it's this rule, why is it this rule rather than a host of other rules? It's another question that says, if it's this rule, why is there a rule at all? And where did that rule come from? Which is the much harder question. One thing that, that's interesting to, to say is when we found the ultimate rule for our universe, I'm sure we will find a way to say, this is the only rule it could possibly be. This is the rule, you know, A equals zero. This is rule number one. And there'll be some way of formulating things that makes it rule number one. But does that really answer what's going on? No, it doesn't. The most fundamental fact about theoretical science is that there is at least some order in the universe. It could be the case that the universe was utterly orderless and ruleless, but it is not. Given that there is some order in the universe, can that turn into a very simple rule that uh, will be sort of the explanation for our whole universe, or will it be a more complicated rule? If it turns into a simple rule, why that rule and not another rule? We're a couple of hundred years away from being able to answer that, at least based on the, on the course of scientific history to date. Stephen does have a new kind of naturalistic mechanism, that the deepest drivers of the laws of nature are simple rules, which remarkably can generate all the complexities of the atom and the cosmos. And that if such simple rules are discovered, it will be apparent that this is the only way the world could be. But from such an only way, what would follow about a reason for the cosmos? Would both questions, can or does, the cosmos have a reason become moot or meaningless? Even so, prevailing opinion is that only way will not happen. Perhaps more radical thinking is needed. I turn to a pioneer of complex systems, a theoretical biologist and author of Reinventing the Sacred, Stuart Kaufman. Stu, and when I look at the cosmos, I want to say, is there a reason? Now, maybe there's no reason, but I want to know that. Can we even ask that question, does the cosmos have a reason? Strangely, I think we can. And I have a wacky idea that I have to get to, to tell you. I need to define the notion of the adjacent possible, which makes clear sense in chemistry. It makes clear sense in the evolution of the biosphere. 
it does not make clear sense in the evolution of the universe, but it could conceivably. And then the wacky idea is that the biosphere, the economy, and the universe grow in such a way that they maximize the growth of the adjacent possible. And I love it. So let me start with a, a, a liter flask with a thousand kinds of organic molecules in it. In a very technical sense, call that the actual. Mm -hmm. Now okay. let them react by a single reaction step, and you may get some new kinds of molecules. Let me call that the adjacent possible. Now, fact. Almost certainly when the Earth was young, four and a half billion years ago, the diversity of organic molecules in the biosphere or in, on Earth was low. Sure. There's hundreds of billions or trillions of kinds of organic molecules now. The organic molecular world has exploded into its adjacent possible. Now let's look at the biosphere. Um, presumably there was a last common ancestor. If you look over the past 600 million years called the Phanerozoic, there are big extinction events like the Permian and Jurassic, but as an average trend, the number of species and the number of genuses, the one taxon up, mm. has gone up. Mm -hmm. Suppose we can find two things, that there are grounds to believe, maybe, 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 that the adjacent possible grows as fast as it can. Because as organisms or businesses make worlds with one another, they make new adjacent mm -hmm. possible mm -hmm. worlds, which are new ways to make livings in the world, whether you're an organism or a company. Mm -hmm. You're increasing diversity, and you're increasing the possible ways of becoming even more diverse. Right. So there is this thing that I call the adjacent possible, and it's, it's clear that we're expanding into it. We just haven't thought about it. Okay, now we see it on this level, so tell me now, how now that could universe. apply to the universe. I can think of at least one pathway mm -hmm. that I steal from my friend Lee Smolin. Lee has done loop quantum gravity. In loop quantum gravity, you think of space as little tetrahedra on the Planck scale. A tetrahedron clones itself and makes a second tetrahedron in what's called a Pachner move. And then you got two, and then they can make four, then they can make eight, then they can make 16, then they make 32. So space is cloning itself. Now think the following rough thought, that the ways that these tetrahedra can grow more tetrahedra constitute the adjacent possible mm. of the universe. Well, do I know that's right? Of course not. I don't know that it's right. But once you've postulated tetrahedra, you're stuck with an adjacent possible. Then what we need is something that says that that means by which the universe grows its adjacent possible the fastest yields the winning universe. Uh, a selection See, effect. It's, it's a selection effect. But you only need, you need a notion of competing universes, but in a tiny sense. So not only do you have standard quantum mechanics, you have fluctuations in the laws themselves. And then you need a selection process. And the selection process is uh, those variations in the laws that give you the fastest growth of the adjacent possible grow the universe the fastest. It becomes the winning universe. And we only need one universe, and it picks out the laws. Now, this is totally <laughs> wacky, but it sure is different than the multiverse, and it's different, it's different than, you know, 10 to the 500 string theories. <laughs> So do I think it's possible? Yeah, do I think it's likely? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> but would that mean that therefore the reason or the purpose, if you want, in some simple sense of the universe, is the creation of diversity? Yes, it's the creation of diversity.
It doesn't get us to the complexity of the universe. It just gives us space right now. Here's what the physicists tell you. Great, we've got 25 constants tuned just right. Otherwise, we'd have a crummy universe. Therefore, we need a multiverse and lucked out into the current one and the weak anthropic principle. I hate it. It may be right, but I just hate it, okay? The other part that we have is that because the universe is expanding, the physicists will tell you that the current entropy of the universe in an expanding space has plenty of ways to increase. Therefore, there's a driving force in the increase of entropy of the universe that could drive the increase of complexity. That's wonderful, and I love it. I don't believe it, but I don't think it's impossible. Stewart offers a reason for the cosmos, the adjacent possible, diversity expanding majestically. He is almost certainly wrong, he says so himself, but credit him with thinking boldly. And the adjacent possible, come to think of it, is not a bad reason. Yet, whatever the reason, they'd follow an even deeper question. Why that reason and not another? So, can the cosmos have a reason? Yes, I think it can. But my reason is that something or other must have no reason. Take your no reason choice. Laws of physics, simple rules, God. But the whys still do not end. Why would whatever it is have no reason? Two possibilities. Either one, it's an accident, contingent, a second-order brute fact. There's no reason why whatever it is has no reason. Or two, it's a necessity. It could not be otherwise. It'd be impossible not to be this way, like one and one equals two. I'd bet that whatever it is that has no reason does not have no reason by accident. The ultimate no reason must be a necessity. That would be better than closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.